The text for this morning's sermon is taken from Leviticus 25, verses 8 to 46. You could turn to Leviticus 25, starting at verse 8, page 103 of the Pew Bibles. The Year of Jubilee. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout the land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property, and if you make a sale to your neighbor, or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price, and if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Therefore you shall do my statutes, and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year, if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old crop until the ninth year, when its crop arrives. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners within me, with me, and in all the country you possess you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man whom he sold it, and then return his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to its property. If a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within one year of its sale. For a full year he shall have the right of redemption. If it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong in perpetuity to the buyer. Throughout his generations, it shall not be released in the Jubilee. 
But if the houses of the villages that have no wall around them shall be classified, shall be classified with the fields of the land, they may be redeemed, and they shall be released in the Jubilee. As for the cities of the Levites, the Levites may redeem at any time the houses in the cities they possess. And if one of the Levites exercises his right of redemption, then the house that was sold in a city they possess shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the people of Israel. But the fields of pasture land belonging to their cities may not be sold, for that is their possession forever. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants, who I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you, who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you inherit it as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. So far the reading. The sermon this morning was prepared by Reverend Reuben Bradenhoff, minister of the Free Reformed Church of Mount Nasura, Western Australia. Beloved in the Lord, somehow the economy makes it into the headlines every week. Whether it's the price of gas, or unemployment rates, or new industry, there's always something for the media to talk about. And the economy is an issue that affects all of us, not just the big banks, politicians, and CEOs. It can have a lot to do with our own day-to-day -day lives. We know that God has something to say about personal finance. For example, earlier in this book of Leviticus, the Lord speaks about bringing a portion of the harvest to the tabernacle in order to thank him. We'll see in this chapter two that God reveals his will about things like credit and debit, loans and gifts. Even while we, we live so many hundreds of years after these lessons were given in a vastly different world, the Holy Spirit still speaks through this passage. Our chapter is about the year of Jubilee and in it we see how God puts the spotlight on a couple of his priorities. One is concern for the individual believer. In God's eyes, every man, woman, and child, male or female, 
rich or poor, is of great worth. Each one of God's people is an heir to his covenant promises. Closely following that is a second of God's priorities, and that is his compassion for the needy. God's heart goes out to those who suffer from want. He's concerned for such people, and he wants us to be, and he wants us to be well. This means this must be the way of life for those who have been set free by Christ, redeemed from captivity and granted a new beginning. I preach God's word to you on this theme from Leviticus 25, verse 8 to 46. God establishes the year of Jubilee for his people. First, we'll see the problem of debt. Second, the solution of release. And third, the demonstration of grace. So starting with the problem of debt. Do you know where Israel is at the time of Leviticus? This book begins with the word and. Literally, and the Lord called to Moses. That little word tells us that Leviticus is part of an ongoing story. God has delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Since the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea, they've been traveling through the wilderness, and right now they're encamped at the foot of Mount Sinai where God is giving them his law. And what's their destination? Well, God is bringing them to Canaan, the place where each tribe and every family will receive a portion of the land. And that's what they're all looking forward to, the tangible blessings of the Lord in thriving flocks and fertile fields. It'd be a place for all of them to live and to prosper. Canaan was going to flow with milk and honey, but it would not be perfect. Not everyone in Israel will experience the same measure of success. God even tells his people this, that the poor will always be among them. That's the reality of this broken world. Crops will fail, businesses go under, people get laid off, and sometimes we make bad choices. However it happens, poverty can strike any one of us. So God addresses a big problem in our chapter, and it's the problem of debt. That little word means you had to borrow and you didn't have enough yourself. So let's understand this debt in the right way. Going into debt in Israel was not nearly as common as it is today. We go into debt when we buy a house, or when we buy a new car sometimes, or when we're getting an education. It might be obvious, but these kinds of debt were unknown to the Israelites, nor did they know much about the kind of debt caused by irresponsible spending. Today, you can go into debt for all kinds of reasons. You can get a loan for a nice vacation. You can put that big TV on payments. I remember being in a store, toy, story one, toy store once and seeing a sign that say, do not pay for three years. You can get almost anything you want today on credit. For the Israelites, their debts arose not because of things that they wanted to buy. Debt was often caused by circumstances outside of their control. You say, say you had your fields planted with wheat or barley, and then the rains do not come. Your crops shriveled or your barns stayed empty. Or locusts came and stripped your vineyards bare. Disasters could throw hundreds of people into serious financial trouble. There could also be a sudden death in the family due to illness or accident. A family might suddenly be without the wages of a hard-working husband and a father. In situations like these, it would be all too easy for an Israelite to fall into debt, 
just to keep food on the table. Maybe things would be fine for one or two years, but soon the effects would be felt. Good meals might become rare. Clothing starts to wear thin. Possessions have to be sold. An Israelite might borrow more and more to stay alive. And what could a person do? Our text describes how if someone ran stuck, there could be a slow descent into poverty. And if it became bad enough, the first severe measure would be to sell his piece of land. God wanted property to stay in the family so the person could sell to a relative. This redeemer, this relative, could then give the land back once the debts were paid. We read that in verse 25. That might work or it might not, and the person could find himself again in deep financial trouble. So the second drastic solution is for that other relative to hire the poor man as a laborer and to give him some interest-free loans so that he has enough to get by. We read in verses 35 and 36, If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him, like a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God that, the, that your brother may live with you. Even that solution might not work, especially if someone struggles to manage his finances. So there was a third solution, the most severe. The poor and landless Israelite would become a servant of his relative. If one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. Verse 39. Now you can hear that God wants the person treated fairly. Even so, the situation was agonizing and demoralizing. You sold yourself and your family into servitude. To us, this seems like an extreme way of dealing with debt. Selling people into servitude makes us think of the African slave trade when thousands were kidnapped, transported to North America, and oppressed for generations. But the practice in Israel was much different. At least it was meant to be different. God intended it to be something like live-in employment. The one who was owed money would benefit from the work of the debtor and his family. For his part, the creditor was expected to be fair, and he had to provide lodging and meals. Being a servant was not ideal, but it was not meant to be miserable either. You had food, you had shelter, and as family, you were still together. You can see that God was transforming a situation of need and potential despair into a situation where people were still provided for and could live at peace. He didn't forget those stuck in financial difficulties, nor did he forget those who were owed money. With the problem of debt, the Lord was fair towards both sides, debtors and creditors. Today, we said, the whole idea of being in debt has expanded dramatically. Borrowing money is a key part of the economy, and credit can serve a useful purpose. Imagine if we all had to save up until we had the full price of a house. Many of us would still be living with our parents, or maybe even our grandparents. The opportunity to borrow money opens up other windows too. Getting an education, building a school, starting a business. Yet, we know that debt can still be a problem. The temptation to spend more than we can afford because we see a lot of things that we like, an upgraded vehicle, a larger home, a better holiday than we had last year. It's accessible because there's loans available and lots of plastic cards to line your wallet or purse and that can become a big problem. 
So even when God provides a solution to debt, he does have something to say to those who choose to borrow lots of money or use credit cards excessively or who live beyond their means. God teaches us in Proverbs, the, God's teaching in Proverbs still applies. Proverbs 22 verse 27, if you lack the means to pay, your very bed will be snatched from under you. That's a lesson and a warning in our materialistic age. Rather, the Lord says in 1 Timothy 6 verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. This shows our need to have a thoroughly biblical view of money. Sometimes Christians have not learned the fundamentals of how to manage their money, nor how to see money matters in God's way. It'd be a responsible thing for each of us to dedicate careful, personal study of the word so that we can learn his will for our finances, also things like debt. We are thankful that God has given us deacons who are able to provide us with practical guidance about these types of things. God has also blessed us with fellow saints in the church who can give help when there is need. What's more, God has given the solution of release. We will see this in our second point. At the beginning of our chapter is a reminder about something called the sabbatical year. This was something God explained already in Exodus 23. The basic idea was that a man works for six days and rests on the seventh. The land must be worked for six years and allowed to rest on the seventh. No tilling of the soil, no planting, no systematic harvesting. Such a year was a chance for the land to be replenished. And in this year, anyone could go and gather what they found growing in the fields and vineyards. The sabbatical year was of special benefit, of course, for those who were poor and had sold their land. Then after seven sabbatical years go by, in the 50th year, or near the end of the 49th, a jubilee was announced. You shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, and the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you 49 years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall make the trumpet to sound throughout your land, verse eight and nine. So let's notice a few things here. First, the name Jubilee is taken from the Hebrew word for trumpet, Yubel, in this case, the horn of a ram. This trumpet was blown at the beginning of the Jubilee to announce it far and wide. Second, the Jubilee was considered one of the Jewish, Jewish festivals. In chapter 23, God gave his people seven feasts each year, the Passover feast, unleavened bread, first fruits, the Feast of Weeks, trumpets, and the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. All these feasts were annual, but the Jubilee took place only once every 50 years. A third thing is that the Jubilee actually begins on the same day as the Day of Atonement. This was God removing all the impurities from the people in a very dramatic way, accepting the sprinkled blood of the most in the most holy place and sending away transgression to the place of no return. The Day of Atonement was like a spiritual reset button. All was cleansed and all was forgiven. The Jubilee was another kind of reset, economically and socially. Verse 10 presents the two central concepts of the event. You shall consecrate the 50th year, 
and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants, it shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. It was about liberty, and it was about return. Return is described in verse 13. In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. And we said that having a slice of real estate in Canaan was a real and tangible proof to everyone that God has kept his covenant promise. So God's intent was not that the wealth accumulate with the big landowners. Rather, he wanted every individual family to be busy working the land, having dominion over creation, developing and subduing like at the beginning in paradise. It was still a broken world, and that's why people went into debt and had to sell. But the Jubilee restored some of that and made the people stewards again under God. Land was returned and people were set free. Look at verses 40 to 41, speaking about the Israelite who sold himself into servanthood. As a hired servant and sojourner, he shall be with you and shall live and shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. And then he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, and shall return to his own family. He shall return to the possession of his fathers. Those who had become servants were given their freedom, and yes, not only allowed to go free, but to return to their original inheritance in the land. In the Jubilee, the clock was set back. Everything owed was forgiven, everything lost was regained. Once every 50 years, about once in a person's lifetime, the slate was wiped clean. This was God's way to limit the painful consequences of poverty. The failure of the parents would not condemn their children and children's children to perpetual slavery and suffering. Families were restored and given the blessing of responsibility again. For those struggling for years with debt and poverty, the Jubilee was an unspeakable joy. At last, a way out. No wonder the beginning of this festival was announced with trumpets. Think of what a life-changing event this would be. Burdens taken away, relationships restored, redemption from suffering and oppression. Sounds good, but how was the Jubilee even possible? Think of those who had purchased land from the poor. They'd gained these assets, fair and square, and now they have to give them back? Doesn't seem right almost seems like a type of primitive communism. But we see how God frames it in this chapter. He keeps saying things like, if one of your brethren becomes poor, verse 25, and also verse 35, he underlines their true relationship. Though someone owes money or has to sell his property, he is still a brother in the Lord. More than that, everyone had to remember God's words in verse 23. The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. This entire land belonged to God, and the people were only temporary tenants. None of them had permanent title to the land, but it was owned by God. So they really could not complain about the Lord's will for their vineyards and their fields. God did recognize, however, that an approaching jubilee may change how people conducted business. If you knew that debts were soon to be forgiven, you might hesitate to lend anybody any money. Or if you knew that you could buy a piece of land and keep it for the next 30 years, you'd be quick to step in. But if you could only hold it for two years, maybe it wasn't worth your while. So God says that the price of land was to be set according to the number of expected crops. 
The more the growing season, the higher the price. Still, all of this did require a lot of trust. Returning land would be hard, so would not planting anything for a sabbatical year, and then the jubilee for two years. How could a person be sure they would have enough? But as so, but as so often, the Lord promises to reward obedience. Verses 18 and 19. So you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them, and you will dwell in the land safely. Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. God will richly provide. He'd give so much blessing in the year before the sabbatical and jubilee that they would have more than enough to last. Now it's too bad, but we cannot put Leviticus 25 laws into practice today. It would be nice to be suddenly released from all our mortgages and loans, but we do live in a different time. We don't only have dealings with our fellow Christians today, and in this land we're not only ruled by God's regulations. Even so, we expect some of God's wisdom from our passage to remain today. One example of how the practice of release, the practice of releasing lives on today's laws, we see it in the possibility of declaring bankruptcy. It is not something to do lightly, of course. We already know that God wants those who are owed money to be treated fairly too. Yet, declaring bankruptcy can release someone from an impossible load of debt, and it can enable a fresh start. It is a merciful, even biblical, part of our society's laws. This passage teaches other things too, like our duty as stewards or managers. Remember what God said, the land is mine. God is still the true owner of everything in this world, including everything we have. So we need to be diligent stewards. God gives us dominion over that place in life where he has put us, our home, our family, our abilities, and our assets. Knowing that it's all God's must shape how we look at borrowing money, lending money, or investing. We ask, how would the owner and God want us to do things? This text also exhorts us to have mercy on those in financial trouble. Now there can be many reasons for poverty, and sometimes we get into difficulty because of unwise choices, like bad purchases or over-dependence on credit. Christian love means we can speak the truth about these things, but remember how the chapter also teaches about the unity we have as brothers and sisters. So we should aim to show compassion to the poor, to find responsible ways to help those who are in need. This brings us to our third point, the demonstration of grace. And with so much of God's law, there was a deeper lesson in the Jubilee. It taught Israel about grace, undeserved kindness, even for the most needy. Jubilee taught that the, Lord, that the Lord thinks of his people in all their trouble, and he gives rescue from life's brokenness. Slaves had their debts canceled, not because they'd worked long enough, but because, because God said their time had come. Families could return to their inheritance, not because they had an inherent right to do so, but because God wanted everyone to have a home. Maybe you can already see how the Jubilee points to Christ. It's a connection that Jesus himself made. We read in Luke 4, when Jesus is preaching in the synagogue of Nazareth, the Lord of the Spirit is upon me, says Christ, 
and he's quoting from Isaiah 61. He has anointed me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, verse 18 and 19. Jesus was commissioned and equipped by God. And what will he do with this anointing? He will proclaim liberty to the captives. He will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's that last line which is so loaded with meaning. For the Israelites, that phrase, the year of the Lord's favor, all about liberty and release, could only mean one thing. It meant the year of the Jubilee. The Jews had even come to connect Isaiah 61 with the promise of the Messiah, knowing that one day he'd come and restore all things. But then Jesus drops a bombshell. Verse 21, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Suddenly, Jesus is saying that the Jubilee has arrived, and they're looking at him. For he has come to forgive debts, to set the captives free, to bring healing and renewal. He is the incarnation of the year of Jubilee. For when we believe in Christ, everything owed is forgiven. Everything lost is regained. He brings deliverance from slavery of the very worst kind, slavery to sin and slavery to the devil. He sets at liberty those who are oppressed and under the sentence of death because he's taken away every one of our transgressions and the penalty that they deserved. Remember how Jubilee started on the Day of Atonement. Well, his atoning death and shedding of his blood, Jesus canceled the high price of sin that weighed so heavy against our account. Once crippled in our debt, hopeless and despised, we've now been released. This is how Jesus declares the gospel in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Verse 28. That is the glorious gospel message of the Jubilee. There is no debt of sin too big to be forgiven. There is no burden so heavy that it cannot be lifted off of us. For Christ releases those who are oppressed. Those who have lost so much can go to him for full restoration. Those who are stuck in their sins and guilt can go to him for a full release. And we all need this, beloved. We all need his forgiveness his spiritual reset in our life, and the beginning of renewal through his mighty spirit. In this way, the Jubilee also points us ahead to the restoration of all things. For one day the trumpet will sound again, this time blown by his holy angels, when Christ our Savior returns on the clouds. Then it's promised that he will make good our full release from Satan. He will restore his people, and he will transform this broken creation to be a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, 2 Peter 3.13. A glorious, unending jubilee. May that be our sure comfort, our steadfast hope, and our daily strength. Amen.